Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts. We welcome you to Bite Into It, where we talk technology, computing, the internet, games, uh, all of the stuff that um, makes life worth living on a Wednesday night. Um, excited to have uh, Mr. Paul Callahan in the studio um, uh, on, on one end of the horse. He's either <laughs> up front or up back, but we're on the same horse. Hey, Warren. How you done? Um, have you had a good week in tech? Has it been serving you well? And uh, um, I, I, I think so. Trying to, trying to cut down on social media use this week. Um, but failing miserably, as I'm sure we all are. Yeah, do you have... Is there one that you sort of would struggle to give up or, or sort of, you know, if you do have a sneak peek, something that's sort of served you well? Uh, that is an interesting question. No, I just sort of like, as I'm sure as I'm sure many of our audience do as well, I just sort of cycle through them in an endless loop. So it's like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, mm. Link, LinkedIn, if you know you want a little bit of a, a breather from like yeah. people talking about their own personal stuff and then just... Round and round and round. I just should stop. I should just delete them all. <laughs> like I know friends of mine have started deleting Facebook after the, um, you know, the news debacle from mm. a few weeks ago. But yeah, I just haven't, haven't. Because I'm weak. I'm weak. That's what it is. Warren, I'm a weak man. Well, yeah. I, I was, I was listening to something about it, about how we, we love new technology and the kind of agency and control and, and things that we get, but we don't like the personal responsibility that comes with it. <laughs> so we say, like, it's the it's the algorithm and it's this and it's that. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the same as you. Like, I, I could get rid of them and, and I probably should get rid of some of them, but it's easy just to have them there even if I don't use them yeah. that much. Um, but... Yeah, no, that's good. I've I've been what have I? I've been trying to do um, more long reads, so getting back into medium and stuff, which is which is nice. You know that that feels good. Um, and even I'm not sure if you could call it a long read. It's certainly not, but more of a forum type experience with with Reddit and just going down into like you know verticals on on particularly strange things. Um, Reddit always feels like pretty well informed, even though it's kind of very particular type of community, I guess. Do you have, are there specific subreddits or you kind of just, do you just like load up the app and then endlessly doom scroll through the, the top rated stuff? Yeah, uh, no, there's a, there's a few that I go to. I, I do look for, um, um, I've got a big thing for pictures on Reddit um, and things like, um, you know, mildly amusing and, and stuff like that I, I quite enjoy. Um, but um, I'm, I'm pretty happy to look at a lot of stuff, um, to be honest. Um yeah, I've had accounts in the past and I had a go at kind of like, you know, getting sort of, you know, subreddit famous, but um, not hasn't really been my thing. <laughs> and you kind of got to invest in it as well. I think like 10, actually 15 years ago now, I was I was beginning to actually, um, probably my first social media was a, a rock climbing forum and like a, and Flickr and just sort of getting, that's how I sort of came into a, a variety of uh, media platforms. But yeah, I certainly hear you there. Um, I'll be with you also. Uh, obviously, I'm Warren Davies and... We've got a, a, an exciting show um, tonight. Um, we're interested to have a chat about um, uh, the new report on uh, digital inclusion and um, uh, and older Australians um, that's been put out by uh, DSS. And uh, we're going to be having a chat with uh, Anthony McCosker, who's Associate Professor of Media and Communication and uh, Deputy Director of Swinburne Social Innovation Research Institute uh, at Swinburne University. So Anthony's going to be uh, joining us uh, a little bit later in the show to, to chat about um, that piece of research. But before then, um, we do have uh, a bit of news. Um, uh, one of the things that uh, caught our eye, um, we are um, sort of, I, I guess, in that awkward uh, space in between um, uh, a pandemic and a, and a vaccine rollout um, with a bit of both going on. Um, and 
I mean, I'm, I'm kind of frustrated about how long it's taking in Australia. Um, there are other countries that are doing a, a much better job of this, but um, things are slowly starting to um, tick over. But unfortunately, uh, we're in a position where um, uh, an organisation with um, a well-earned uh, bad reputation, Health Engine, um, has now been um, given the, the contract to build Australia's vaccine booking platform, which is um, hopefully going to be live uh, in a few weeks' time. So Department of Health has selected Health Engine from, a, a, I guess, a, a wide field of quality um, uh, tenderers um, to, to build this platform. Um, uh, you, may, you may recall um, uh, uh, Health Engine from uh, such dramas as um, we engineered our own review system. And um, I'm just trying to remember the, uh, the other one. Um, there was, oh, they were sharing personal data of people that had been using some of their platforms without permission. Um, so, yeah, they'll find $2.9 million for sharing patient data without consent and, uh, and screwing reviews. Um, sounds great. Sounds great. So, um, I guess, you know, I'd like to say um, leopards can change its spots and they can get better at doing this thing. But, um, yeah, our shared health is at, at risk here. Um, so if, if that's the kind of um, uh, strength of, of, of their, um, their business, then um, we should all be a bit concerned about that. So that's interesting. We'll have to keep an eye on that, um, health engine and the, the vaccine rollout. I mean, if, it, if it's anything like the NBN rollout, we're going to be talking about this in five years' time. <laughs> I tell you what, we're going to have to dedicate a whole chunk of the show to it. It is, um, it is sort of interesting the, the way that, that, you know, some of these tech things, these big kind of tech purchases are like, uh, I guess, tender or processes are sort of being impacted by COVID. Like I saw um, earlier this week someone tweeting or facebooking about how the track and trace system in the uk at like the cost of 37 billion mm. was like effectively the third largest infrastructure project in history behind like wow. the iss the international space station and the entire u.s road network wow as well and yeah and someone described it as like yeah we spent all this money and we just got a crappier version of pokemon go that doesn't work <laughs> for um, tracking and tracing people so yeah hopefully hopefully fingers crossed um, this one isn't as much of a, a debacle as in the UK. But uh, one thing that also could do with a bit of uh, repair work is um, uh, our, our old phones. Um, you've got a bit of news on this. Yeah, so, I mean, this this sort of, it seems to be um, a topic that, that loops around every every now and then, um, but has come, come back to the fore. Um, so just kind of phone repair shops and you know like getting your your devices repaired more cheaply um is is under threat just from tech the large tech companies you know making these devices increasingly uh more difficult um to repair so a number of these um smaller companies are actually starting to like bring these concerns to the government and obviously you know we've had conversations about um you know proprietary ports and you know phones getting smaller um and the price and obviously the tech companies want to keep you upgrading over and over again so it's interesting that it's becoming more visible like this article in the guardian um where some of the companies are talking about that. But also, interestingly, um, in France, um, Apple have been forced to add uh, re effectively repairability scores. I don't know if anyone has ever bought uh, a Mac. They probably have gone along to like Mac Fix It and looked at you know how much glue is in your laptop, like how easy it is to repair. Um, so now Apple have to, to put in how repairable each of their devices are. Um, online in France to to comply with that law, and it's a, that's a law designed to to reduce waste. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how 
you know, our our government um, at the federal level and potentially the state level um, tries to balance, you know, their relationship, their incredibly positive ongoing relationship with large tech companies, um, as well as, you know, effectively uh, a sort of a local industry and repairs uh, and things like that. So I guess we'll just sort of see how, you know, the, the Productivity Commission and the Right to Repair Inquiry continues over the next few months. So I guess that's a story we'll sort of be revisiting um, over the next few months. Mm. It's interesting because I feel like there's for every one sort of Apple superstore or Samsung sort of large store, you've you've got sort of ten or fifteen kind of you know little businesses that are happy to fix a broken screen or you know replace a, a loose screw or something yeah. that's pretty easy to do. But I'm trying to think of the the cons to um, letting letting these kind of cottage industries kind of flourish. I mean, obviously. There is some risk that uh, you know a valuable piece of equipment will be damaged with uh, you know, someone who's kind of like fast and loose with the repair job. But surely, for you know, the benefit of like getting a ten dollar fix for a screen or something like that, compared to replacing a screen or you know having your phone out of action for weeks, it just makes so much more sense to have people be able to fix these. Yeah, and also the longevity of just having those devices in the market and or you know in circulation and keeping them out of keeping it out of landfill mm. um, or finding ways for them them to be recycled. Like it's, you know, there's probably like a larger circular economy sort of influence on on these ideas as well. Like it does definitely feel you know sort of in a post COVID world we are trying to look at local economies and like ongoing sustainability. And I think. These pressures, these pressures are being felt by tech, even if they're not articulated by tech as well. Interesting. Um, you have also been uh, keeping an eye on uh, crypto art. Um, what's going on here? I, I am, I am sort of like simultaneously fascinated and horrified uh, by uh, blockchain technology, mm. um, and and this kind of, I mean, it, it feels new to me, so I'm super happy to, to have the chance to, to come on, come on the show and talk about it. But this idea of like non fungible tokens um, and how that relates to um, art selling and making and um, the sort of a broader art market. Um, and I, I was sort of reflecting on some of these articles that I've been reading um, the past few weeks. And, and I think I had my first conversation about smart contracts um, and blockchain and how blockchain was going to revolutionize this sort of thing maybe six or seven years ago. Um, and I've, you know, dipped into to these conversations uh, like over the years, like just, pe- you know, people, people sort of going, you know, blockchain contracts, blah, blah, blah. Um, but this seems, it seems to really have like exploded and come of age just in the past few months. So I've seen articles, um, you know, there's an article on ABC. I've seen an article on The Verge about Jack Dorsey effectively making uh, the very first tweet um, and attaching that to a non-fungible token um, and selling it. And I think it's up to like a quarter of a million dollars. Um, and basically this is about attaching JPEGs or GIFs or memes um, to effectively a blockchain um, and uh, the list of transactions and creating a, a scenario where it can always be tracked in the way that all these kind of blockchain transactions transactions are. Um, and it's interesting, like it was the, one of the artists was saying it's really great for them because they now get 10% of every sale like in perpetuity mm. moving forward. So it's not just that kind of first sale and they've lost all of the rights. They're able to to control to control that moving forward. And it's been used for, you know, there, there's some of the examples. It's like people have just taken a meme, but the meme is still viewable. But now because there's this artificial scarcity built into it, um, it becomes 
very desirable um, within that. So that's kind of the, the positive part of it. At the same time, um, a lot more people are starting to look at the environmental costs of blockchain technology. Mm. Um, and it's these... the third or fourth biggest country by sort of energy consumption. Yeah, and so, yeah. so there was a really interesting article I was reading uh, on Medium where they basically map, they kind of do all of these estimates um, and, and map out um, how much uh, energy some of these sales uh, are making so um, it, at the top of this and we'll link to this on the Twitter um, in under half a year one artist multi-edition NFTs have a footprint of 260 uh, megawatt hours which is 160 tons of CO2 emissions um, which is equivalent to an EU resident's electricity consumption for 77 years so this is for one uh, one piece of multi-edition art that's equivalent to flying for 1.5 thousand hours, um, driving 838,000 kilometers for petrol, boiling a kettle 3.5 million times, um, using a laptop for 2.5 thousand years, or using a computer for 636 years. So the, the environmental costs, you know, like talking about local economies and circular economies and impact of these things, the environmental costs um, of these sort of crypto technologies are, are massive, like really, really significant um, and, and are sort of hidden, you know, behind the scenes. And I think it's interesting that we're sort of at a point now simultaneously with, with these technologies and then being able to articulate the value to artists and, and the ongoing part of that, but also that environmental sensibility um, of these and how we balance those. Um, and there are, you know, within this conversation, there are lots of discussions about, you know, different models for, for crypto, different models for blockchain technology, which are less, um, you know, energy intensive, mm. but it's still part of it's still part of a process we're, st we're still kind of going trying to navigate that those challenges between what's how do we support artists how do we you know move these things forward how do we use this technology in a responsible way um and also how do we maybe not burn the planet um in doing so so big complex you know story and i think i think it would be great to sort of for, if, to maybe find some some interesting people for us to interview down the track and mm. and, and pick that up but yeah yeah, no, we could uh, we could certainly do that. I know, um, you know, um, Cade, sort of previous uh, presenter on the show, um, has got a, a deep interest in this. So perhaps we could um, rustle up Cade to, to see um, if we get some chins wagging there. But it is interesting. I do like the idea. I mean, you know, sort of inflated art markets and so forth have been around for you know since we sort of scribbled on walls and and so forth. I like the idea that. Um, art from this era has found uh, a currency or a, or a value that's of this era as well. I'm not sure I necessarily agree with how it works, but I, I, I do like the fact that it's happened. Um, but yeah, I also I, I would also really appreciate that we sort of decouple the creation of the currency with uh, the the way that we mine it at the moment because it's just painfully ridiculous <laughs> that you know we're, we're going to um, sort of um, you know find a, a fiery death um, just to sort of support this currency, which you know 
more power to it. I think anyone who can invent value and if people buy into value, there's there's something good there as long as it doesn't harm people. Um, but um, you know, at what cost? We we have equivalent currencies and there's ways to trade and and uh, make a way without um, without cryptocurrencies. Yeah. Um, yeah. Nor on a dead planet. It's probably, yeah. probably the way to think about it. Exactly right. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. We are now uh, joined uh, over the airwaves by uh, Anthony McCosco, who's uh, Associate Professor of Media and Communication and Deputy Director of Swinburne Social Innovation Research Institute, and I understand a tutor for um, uh, Mr. Dan Salmon, who um, is um, the silent producer for tonight. But um, Anthony's here to have a chat with us about um, uh, an interesting new report, um, Be Connected. uh, there's been an evaluation done. It's um, looking at the digital inclusion of older Australians and Anthony has been um, uh, looking deeply at the tea leaves. Anthony, thanks for coming on the show tonight to have a chat with us. Hey, thanks for having me. I love the show. So it's good to be here. Oh, no. Uh, we've got a picture of you up. Um, so it was only a matter of time before you came in and, and had a <laughs> chat with us. Um, so uh, the, the report um, uh, has been out for... for um, uh, well, it's been commissioned by um, Department of um, Social Services, and it, it is, um, uh, I guess, a really important topic. Be connected. We, from time to time, do have a chat about um, uh, is, um, I guess, our our bright, shiny digital future um, accessible to all of us? And th- this looks in particular mm-hmm. at older Australians. What, what, what's your view there? Uh, are older Australians yeah. uh, enjoying the the benefits and and, and rewards of, um, I, I guess, a, a digital future? Yeah. Look, it's. Probably the most important thing to say first up is um, there's a lot of myths and there's a lot of stereotypes. So um, the key thing that we saw with older Australians who and who were who trying to improve their digital skills and their literacy, digital literacy, so there's a great deal of diversity. So um, to stereotype that all old people aren't online, aren't using social media, aren't using mobile phones, all of that is a bit of a myth. We really saw um, that there's there's three groups of or three types of people. Um, there's those who are really disconnected and um, you know haven't had the kind of life experiences and exposure to digital technologies that we would take for granted, um, particularly through not having it in the workplace, not having it as an educational background, um, and just not being um, in the space to access and use digital technologies um, like most people that we think of. And there's a second group who are actually really high-end users, who are really confident, really capable, and, and really enjoying, you know, using all of the, the benefits of, of um, social media, of, of buying and selling things online, um, of connecting with grandkids and friends, um, connecting with groups and so on. And there's a group in between, um, and actually really interested in the grouping in between who are, who are um, as they move further into retirement, um, are kind of um, more and more alienated by new technologies that come along. Um, they might get a, a smartphone thrown at them um, as a hand-me-down from, from uh, one of their adult children or, um, you know, or a new laptop or a computer or a tablet and not really know what to do with it. Hmm. I'm, I'm interested to know when we say um, older Australians. Can you kind of describe this demographic? Yeah, are there? Is it yep. sort of above a certain age, or is it a, a, yeah. a sort of skill set? Or um, what, what yeah, are you yep. So um, 
It's interesting because the ABS kind of focuses on um, particular age groups um, and really we refer to over 65-year-olds as, as older Australians as, as part of that demographic and then over 84 as um, and over 85 as, as, the, as the next kind of major age range according to ABS. But um, actually this program, which is a national program, um, is targeting um, people over 50. So if you think about, you know, if you think about over 50, it's not actually all that old, it's still working age. Um, there are still, you know, a, a good 15 years for a lot of people or more um, in working life. So if you think about the, the issues that come up um, when um, people in that age range, um, you know, perhaps put off um, or lose their job, have to retrain and in doing so if they haven't had that exposure and, and you know don't have the digital skills are suddenly confronted with everything being online job ads um, you know education learning retraining etc interesting and um, it's it's no small thing as well. Um, Be connected as a as a program model has got uh, a lot of partners and there's there's a lot of support behind it. What's the what's the shape yeah. of it? Um, Be connected. Yeah, look, it's it's actually a, a quite an innovative model, um, and you know, it works as a, a kind of um, yeah network of partner organisations. There's around three thousand five hundred partner organisations across Australia that are that are in some way funded or or have been provided grants to to deliver um, digital skills training or to to employ or attract men digital mentors, which can be. Um, older people themselves, um, they can be volunteers or they could be paid in community community roles. Um, but these are so there's a whole heap of organizations that you'd um, you know you'd, you'd probably assume like uh, local libraries, neighborhood houses, um, you know uh, TAFE and adult education, but there's also um, a, a huge range of other organizations like cultural clubs, um, even bowling clubs, men's sheds, um, yeah, a, a whole range that, are, that have kind of taken up the, the need and the mission, I guess, of the program. Um, so it's been really, you know, good leadership, I think, to finally um, have this kind of national, um, national vision around digital inclusion, focusing on um, older, older Australians in particular. Uh, Anthony, it's uh, Dan here jumping in from behind the desk. Um, I've, I'm interested to know what, uh, if uh, there has been any kind of, I suppose, research or findings around, because we're looking at older Australians, as you get older, generally you are more inclined or more in need of the services that the federal government would provide. And the federal government yeah. is obviously pushing to move every, all of their services online, as are most state governments. Um, is there still a fair amount to go in terms of getting people who are in need of those services comfortable with using them online? Oh, for sure. Um, so there's, there's been a lot of work done around My Age Care. Um, that's the, the sort of government portal that, that gives older Australians access to um, services, to, um, you know, all, all of the, the kind of tools to manage their health, wellbeing, um, social connection, activities, etc. Um, uh, as as they age, but um, I think there, there was a, a really good point made in the Royal Commission into Aged Care just recently that was just recently released um, that, that actually made a really 
strong point about um, older Australians not having easy access to the information that they need, the support services, and and you know significant issues around um, being able whether they could find the services that they need through through my aged care. So, like we call this a, a sort of shift to digital by default. It's um, government services going online first. Um, and in some cases, in a lot of cases, actually online only. Um, and when you're talking to, when you're talking about, um, you know, older people who are, you know, have no idea how to set up an email account, for example, um, you know, that kind of introduces a whole heap of heap of barriers. My parents were still um, of the mind that you had one email address per computer. Um, so <laughs> I'm like, why why are you both sharing this email? And it's like, well, we've only got the one computer. <laughs> yeah. Same, same. My parents are the same. So, um, so Anthony, how do, how do we help people who are particularly when I'm because I've I've got a, an experience recently where I was required to uh, help a particularly old, well, not particularly, but someone who is needed basically to submit an insurance claim. Didn't even realise mm-hmm. I had an email address, and I had to kind of step in to help him through the process. What kind of safety nets are there for people who? are completely digitally, for want of a better word, digitally illiterate, who yeah. can't get into the... or who don't know how to use these services but are in, you know, urgent need of it? Yeah, look, um, essentially that's why this program was set up. There aren't good, um, wide coverage safety nets um, for this sort of thing. So traditionally, you know, I think, I think everyone has the sense that um, older people are meant to go to their their adult kids or their grandkids to to get help or or friends um, or other family members and we know from research actually that that's that's usually the the least helpful um, there's a lot of especially with grandkids there's a lot of you know snatching the phone or snatching the tablet setting something up saying all you got to do is you know this that and the other and then leaving them to it and not really helping so I think you know um, probably those um, accessible services like um, libraries are the best place to start. Um, and um, yeah, and, and look, and, and be connected has that that kind of introductory um, first step element to it. Um, so there's good online line um, resources as well as part of the program. I noticed, Anthony, in the, um, the the summary of the the different groups, the um, uh, emerging learners, evolving learners, and accomplished learners. Uh, emerging learners, it looks like there's a lot of uh, representation from uh, cold communities, and um, yep. it suggests here people with kind of non-professional occupations, so people who've had a uh, a trade or, or kind of you know worked in the home or a variety of other places. Um, how, yep. How's that group doing at, at sort of um, making those first steps, and, and what are some of the specific challenges there? Yeah, look, um, it, you're right. Like, so what we found is that they that that group um, that, are, that are more disconnected tend to be, you know, statistically tend to be women. They tend to be older um, in in the cohort, and they tend to be people we we classified as um, having low English reading skills and and um, writing skills. And and what that means to me, or that what what we thought that meant was that, um, or reminded us really was that. Digital literacy is not disconnected from literacy in general. Um, so, if information and services and you know sites and platforms aren't um, aren't designed in a way to connect with those people, as in you know um, with all of the language options, then 
then there's going to be difficulty in, in access. But we found a few other things as well with that group. Um, there, a huge amount of anxiety. Um, and, you know, it, it, it always um, kind of shocked me a little bit um, to, to kind of hear the, the constant um, stories about how, you know, it's just, there was a, a real palpable fear about breaking the machine, you know, just doing something wrong, pressing the wrong button, um, destroying everything, wrecking it all. And it's just this, this kind of, um, you know, almost shame and, uh, and, and in that sense, not really knowing where to go to, to get started, you know, and, and not knowing that, um, you know, you can make mistakes and all you've got to do is reboot and, and, and it'll be fine. I'm curious to know um, what some of the, uh, um, I, I guess, um, future focus for um, Be Connected is. What, what are some of the areas where Australia doesn't do particularly well in, in terms of um, supporting digital literacy and, and, and where you think we should be focusing in the, in the next couple of years? Yeah, well, look, um, the key thing is funding. You know, this is, this is a national program. It wasn't a huge amount of funding. It was around um, just under $50 million for, for three years. Um, and that's been extended, um, but at a lower um, amount of funding. And if you think about, you know, if you think about that as an amount, as a as a proportion of, of you know, much bigger budgets for social services or for health and well, welfare and well-being, um, it's a drop in the ocean. So, um, you know, the first step is developing these national strategies, and the the next step is keeping them going. Um, so we know that. You know, technology doesn't stop changing. Um, it's always changing. There's always new things. Um, you know, if you imagine what is going to be uh, in place, you know, 40, 50 years from now, uh, it'll probably be as foreign to us as, um, you know, social media or, or whatever it is, uh, or TikTok is to, to a current 84-year-old. So, you know, there's. I think it's just about maintaining the effort and maintaining the, the attention to the issue. Um, what we also know is that we need to kind of push this beyond older Australians. There's, there's something like 2.5 million Australians who aren't online um, for one reason or another, and that includes younger people, it includes um, people with disabilities, um, learning disabilities, um, you know, people who are unemployed and uh, just haven't had that, that exposure or those skills um, through their education or, or workplaces. Interesting. Um, if people are curious about this and, and, and either um, want to sort of learn a little bit more about um, uh, Be Connected and, and the evaluation report, where, where can they go and um, find out a bit more? Yeah, look, the um, Department of Social Services has um, our has published our evaluation report. Um, it's so it's available online. Um, the minister released that last week. It's called Improving Digital Inclusion of Older Australians. Um, and it's it's about a catch twenty two, though, Anthony. We're gonna we'll, we'll work on that for next time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you go on. <laughs> Sorry, I, I missed that. Oh yeah, no, no, I was just, uh, I was just backpedaling badly on my joke. Um, but do, <laughs> do continue. All right, um, and uh, and also just have a look at the resources online. Um, but, but also, every pretty much every library um, has access to to information now um, about digital inclusion, digital skills, um, and you know, I, I, I think that they're the best place to start. 
Mm. Yeah, we do. Um, we do have a look for uh, events through Eventbrite, and um, they are um, uh, literally on at every library pretty much every week. Um, yeah. But just basic things for getting online, setting up your email, you know, how to use Google yeah. and, and so forth. But um, that's great. We've tweeted out some links to, to the uh, evaluation, and um, yeah, be excited to see how uh, Big Connected develops. So, thanks very much for yeah. for telling us a little bit about it. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. We are now going to have a bit of a, a chat about, um, I guess, uh, all things games. Um, so, uh, obviously, um, the Byte crew have been playing all kinds of different games over summer and so forth, but we're also, more, more so than just games players, we're games makers and, and games fans, and um, also been reading up on um, what's kind of, uh, I guess, shaping uh, what we play this year and, and even how games are made. But, um, yep. Paul, what's been kind of like on your on your mind? What what have you been thinking about over the past sort of six months in terms of games and um, how they're made and how we play them? And, and obviously, you're free to talk about anything you have been playing or thinking about. Um, yeah, it's sort of, it, feel, it feels like quite an interesting time um, for games, as I'm sure it is for most of our audience. Um, looking at you know, the new consoles and big publishers and big hardware companies, you know, consolidating. Um, but at the same time, you know, as as we've talked a lot about in the show, those kind of smaller indie developers trying to trying to find new paths and, and new ways of thinking and making um, work, um, and also I mean starting to starting to veer into to what what I would describe as this kind of artist game maker mold as well. Um, so to kind of maybe pull together some interesting stories on, on all of those topics mm. um, at at the big end of town. Um, Microsoft's uh, 7.5 billion uh, acquisition uh, of Bethesda, um, who are the publishers of um, major franchises like Fallout, Doom, um, and The Elder Scrolls. Um, that uh, has been given the all clear by the EU and the US regulators. Um, it is obviously a massive, massive acquisition. Um, and so then we have to sign in through our Microsoft account or something like that to play <laughs> those? That's terrible. I mean, it, it's... It's been interesting watching some of the backpedaling because there was, you know, this this was announced six months ago that this was the intent and there was kind of like, no, no, all of our games will be, you know, available on all platforms and there was a bit more like, well, of course, some of them will be Xbox and PC exclusives. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what other large consolidations we sort of see, um, you know, from, from the major publishers and, and the major hardware companies. Obviously, Microsoft are... A software company at heart, uh, so they'll they'll continue to kind of focus on software. I think you know it's not unreasonable to say that that you know uh, Sony are, are a hardware company at heart. Um, they have a lot of first person studios, but those first person studios tend to come about through um, sort of emerging rather than these kind of large scale acquisitions. And obviously, Nintendo will just always do what Nintendo just does, which is whatever the hell um, they like. And they've got two hundred years worth of money in the bank, so they're probably not super worried about what's going to happen. Um, interestingly, kind of alongside that, Epic Games, who obviously have the Epic Game Launcher and the Unreal Engine, um, they've uh, just acquired. Um, the this team that made Fall Guys, if anyone was playing that kind of over the coronavirus uh, lockdown. So online game, basically trying to make your way through a bunch of nutty um, uh, sort of difficult terrains and obst mm. obstacle courses. That's a phrase I'm looking for. Um, so another major epic acquisition, Epic Games have loads of money. Um, 
you know, so that, and obviously, like previously, I've tried to sue um, Steam and Apple um, to get access to that. Um, EA purchased Codemasters as well, who made a bunch of racing games in the UK as well. So lots of consolidation, mm. um, which, you know, is pretty common at this stage in a new console lifecycle. Everyone's trying to buy up talent to shore things up. What that will probably mean in a year or two is a bunch of people when their their golden handshakes or their contract times are up, like a bunch of the creatives and the, the you know, the people will leave and start new studios and we'll see a flurry of maybe, maybe new work um, coming out of that. Um, at the sort of the smaller end, there's been a, a couple of really interesting articles that have sort of emerged recently about looking at different models for funding. Um, so an article in Guardian recently looking at um, indie development, indie investment, um, and some of the challenges about securing money for smaller scale indie projects, and certainly some of the challenges in looking at uh, arts funding for games development um, and simultaneously an interesting article in The Verge. Um, it's really interesting from a Melbourne uh, and Australian context because Film Victoria have obviously been funding like small scale games um, for well over a decade now um, and we're quite lucky that we have that kind of government you know funded support not every every place that makes games has has that going on so so yeah and they just recently announced that they had funded i think it was around 15 15 new projects um but also uh a new intern scheme as well for people to starting off in their career so partnering with mm. local studios um including leave geeks who i know we've probably spoken about on the show before mm. so interesting to sort of see those big end of town mm. small end of town trends emerging it's funny to think about um why governments wouldn't get into supporting games development. I mean, it's not just a Melbourne thing. I'm, I'm sure, you know, Sydney and Brisbane and Hobart and Adelaide are, are, all, are all doing their thing. But when you think about not just kind of like tier one games and how they make, you know, billions of dollars, they make many-fold more, um, more um, uh, much more in terms of revenue than, say, uh, a blockbuster film, um, which is traditionally like the sort of thing that you like to try and attract or, you know, have a, a film industry or, or a TV industry, which is not to besmirch them um they're they're an important part of sort of the the, the culture of um you know any any community but um even things like esports which are, are going absolutely bonkers and um are you know a monster economy in in their own right why why would you not kind of like put put a dollar in to make another ten dollars <laughs> like out of it like it's it's just such a no-brainer isn't it i mean i think it, it becomes quite it becomes quite complex compared to other art forms because like you're even just, you know, you start, you start talking about esports and it's like esports are, you know, how do they relate to kind of economic and cultural practice? And then this kind of art, or, you know, this artist game maker where it is more like expressive and an arts practice. And mm. then you do have kind of the economic argument. And I think it's for some other arts practices, it's an easier thing to navigate and to say well we're going to fund this as art so we're going to fund this as culture mm. whereas i think video games do cut across all of those different types of activity from you know esports and spectatorship to you know supporting new new high capital businesses to supporting uh creative practice and so i think it can sometimes be like globally it becomes about what are the conditions on the ground that we actually want to amplify or support um and then it requires like a will to sort of do that work um, as well. So I think it's, it's, I think we're in quite a privileged position here um, in a lot of ways, but I'm, I'm sort of looking forward to, like having watched certainly the Film Victoria funding develop over mm. the past decade to see what the next decade of that, that process and that model looks like and to see what globally um, sort of gets picked up. 
I think we just need more nerds in power, basically. <laughs> As I'm still smarting from um, uh, being called a, a, a nerd on the first show of the year, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> it's only a matter of time before we have a Scott Ludlam or someone who's just going to you know throw a bunch of cash at this sort of thing and go, "This just makes sense." Yeah. So um, yep. it's 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 months, not not years away. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, other sort of gaming news. This one made me feel incredibly old. But the PlayStation Two is officially 21 years old. Ooh. I think as of earlier this week and when it was launched in Japan um, that is <laughs> Dad's just put his head in his hands um, yeah. I remember when that happened and I did, was not young when that happened <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah for the, those of you who remember playing um, I think uh, Fade to Black probably my, my kind of early very early Tomb Raider mm. early PlayStation 2 memories um, thanks for thanks for 21 years um, and now you can probably play a bunch of those games on, on your phone um, as well, I think um, I still have the Guitar Hero guitars <laughs> tucked away somewhere. Oh dear! Yeah. Um, Looking to the future, uh, looks like there's a new Nintendo Switch on the way. Nintendo Pro, Nintendo Switch Pro, gonna have 4K output, probably a better battery life. Hopefully, fixing the Joy-Con drift uh, as well, so that we can look forward to that um, later in the year. And just to sort of finish up, looping back a little bit on the the conversation that we were having earlier, um, is the Now Play This festival. Um, which is a festival that takes place uh, in London um, at Somerset House. But like a lot of games festivals, they're going in online and international. Um, so if you take a look at nowplaythis.net, um, and this year they're explicitly looking at games and a climate crisis. Um, and from their website, um, their four-day program will explore the relationship between play, games, and the climate crisis and look at what playful art can teach us about agency, resources, and cooperation. Um, and ask the question is, can games inspire us to relate sustainably to each other and to the environment around us? Um, or is games culture complicit in this crisis? Mm. Um, uh, and that festival is going to run from March the 25th to the 28th. Um, and you can join from anywhere in the world. Um, so you don't need to be in London. Um, and having been in London for it, it is a super exciting um, event. So I'd urge you to check that out if you're interested in games or climate or playful arts. Amazing. I was I was reading something recently where they said one of the only ways they could actually get world leaders to imagine sort of sea levels rising and the temperature change was to actually go into a simulation yep. where they were literally playing a game where they're like, oh, okay, so it's going to be up to my waist and I can see that now. And so that, that sounds exciting. It's good to see a, a, an overlap between things that we're really passionate about and things that we need to get more passionate about yep. um, as, a, as a community. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. We did want to um, call out uh, uh, an interesting little thing um, uh, that caught our eye. Um, smart speakers uh, are now being used to detect irregular heart rhythms uh, in the room. Uh, it's making use of um, uh, some good features around AI. Scientists at the University of Washington have, um, yeah, taken advantage of modern machine learning to um, find a a therapeutic system where you don't have to be hands-on with your patient and once you understand what their heart should be doing or you know you've got a good understanding of what hearts are generally doing I can actually just pick up um, with the audio in the room uh, what's happening with hearts and if you're in a, a difficult situation um, it can um, uh, bridge you to help uh, which is exciting can, um, can it diagnose a broken heart um, play a bit of Elvis for you um, or, uh, or yeah um, that, that would be interesting um, uh, we'll have to find a, a pattern for that one. That's uh, an interesting idea. But I don't know. It, obviously, kind of um, smart speakers have, have copped a bashing, and, and rightly so, for, for sort of um, easy breaches of privacy and, and kind of are they on, are they off, uh, those kinds of things. But I, I think here's a good use case where if they are going to be on a lot, um, 
then um, we should use them. But um, thank you very much to uh, our guest, uh, Anthony McCosker, for joining us tonight. Um, thanks to Paul and Dan, and also to our uh, talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.